ask you to think back to your old school days. Some of you, that was not that long ago. Some of you, others, maybe it was a while. I struggled. I, I had bits and pieces of this memorized in my mind, but I had to look it up on Google. But I wanted to test you. All right, it's a science quiz, pop quiz. Do you remember Newton's laws of motion? Newton's laws of motion. I remembered the first one. An object in motion will remain in motion, and an object at rest will remain at rest until or unless it's acted upon by an outside force. That's Newton's first law of motion. That is the extent of my physics knowledge, okay? <laughs> but Google told me that that law describes inertia, which I can't, I don't even attempt to define, okay? It just does, it's just a fact. But I got to thinking about that law of motion because if we're honest, we are bodies in motion, aren't we? I mean, we go from one thing to the next, constant movement, constant motion. We're acted upon, of course, by all of our obligations, our responsibilities, the commitments we've made, and so we zig and zag, move from here to there, and in between, we fill our lives with all other kind of stuff. We're in motion, and we're going to stay in motion unless God gives us rest. And that is the premise of this whole series, that the restlessness, the ceaseless movement, the interior disheveledness of our lives will be the reality you and I live with unless God gives us rest, unless he changes the calculus for us, you and I will always fret and worry about the future. We will always be overwhelmed with our to-do list and obligations and responsibilities. We'll always be weighed down by our worries and cares unless we are acted upon by the great outside force, which is God. And so this morning, I want to tell you that rest is possible. You can live a restful life. In fact, I would put it to you like this. When you know and follow Jesus, you can live a restful life regardless of your circumstances. No matter what circumstances you're facing, however busy you think you are, however strapped for cash you might be, you can be at rest in Christ. And so I want to prove that to you from this passage, and I want to extend the invitation Jesus extends for you to come to him and take on his easy yoke and his light burden and find rest for your souls. The first thing I feel compelled to do is to define for us what rest actually is. Have you guys rest ever? You get away for a week at the beach and you come back and you need a vacation from your vacation right? We're not talking about that kind of rest. We're talking about something even deeper than that. And this morning, the first thing I want you to know is you were made to rest in God. That's what God created you for. You were made to rest in him. When the Bible talks about rest, it doesn't talk about recharging our batteries so we can go again. It means this overwhelming state of security and contentment and peace and wholeness. In fact, if you open up your Bible 
to the very beginning of the Bible, and you just made a commitment that I'm just gonna read until I come across the word rest. The first time you find it would actually be not about any human being, but it would be about God himself. And on the very first pages of the Bible, God rests. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And over the six days that followed, God brought order to the chaos of that early world. On day one, two, three, four, five, and six, God was preparing a place for you and me, preparing a perfect place for people. And as his crowning act of creation on day six, he made the first man, picked up some dirt, molded it into a body, and breathed life into its nostrils. He placed him in the Garden of Eden. And God looked over all the things he had made, and Genesis 2 tells us that God saw that it was very good, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he'd done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. God rested. I believe the Bible teaches us that when God gave Adam, the first man, a job to work and keep the garden, God had a goal in mind that God intended for Adam to join him in his rest. Of course, there was gonna be work to do, but it was gonna be the type of work that you looked back on after a long day and you breathed the sigh of relief and contentment and you're like, wow, this is good. This was a good day's work. But maybe you know the story that pretty soon after God had created Adam and gave him the job to do with the promise that he could enter into his rest, Adam rebelled against God and disobeyed his commands. And instead of entering into God's rest, instead what he found was toil. In Genesis chapter three, after God confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent, he hands out the punishment that each one is to bear for their sin. And in Genesis three seventeen, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles will grow for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you're dust, and to dust you shall return. See, instead of the rest God intended for Adam, he got toil. And you know what that toil is all about. That's, that's the toil you and I buckle under day by day. And the story of the Old Testament is God's attempt to bring his people into some semblance of the rest that he had created them for. In Genesis 5, a man named Lamech has a son. He names him Noah, which is related to the Hebrew word nuach, which means to rest. And Lamech says to himself, maybe finally this man will bring us rest. But of course he doesn't. There's no rest for the wicked. Eventually, the great patriarchs of the Bible, the men who walked with God, they come to have a little bit of rest. They're nomadic shepherds, but God plants them in this place called Palestine and makes a promise to them that in the future generations, they'll possess this land forever. But that wasn't to last. They end up in Egypt where they become slaves. And God raises up a redeemer for them named Moses, and he takes them out into the wilderness after conquering Pharaoh, and he meets with them at Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law. And do you know what his fourth commandment was in that law? You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
And this is why. He says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God had created mankind for rest with him, and he was starting to give it to his people in increments. They got the seventh day, the Sabbath, set apart as a day of rest. Nobody was allowed to work. Their servants weren't allowed to work. Their animals weren't allowed to work. They're supposed to enter into this day of rest with God. Later, God will connect it not only to the seventh day of creation, but also to their time in slavery. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12, Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments, and he tells the new generation, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, nor your ox or donkey or any of your cattle or even any sojourner who stays with you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is rest, deep, meaningful, God-given rest for the people of God. It marked them out as distinct from the world. They're the only people who practice the Sabbath as we know it. And yet even this was imperfect. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and as they stood in Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land, God had told them that when they came into the promised land, he was gonna give them an even better rest. He told Joshua in Joshua 1.13, don't forget, the Lord your God said he's gonna go with you and he's gonna give you rest. And throughout the story of Joshua's conquest, the promised land, we get to the very end where Joshua 23.1 says that the Lord gave them rest from all their enemies. Finally, at last, God's people planted in God's place, enjoying the benefits of God's rest. Maybe you know the story. Not long after Joshua's death, the people of Israel started to do what was right in their own eyes, and God allowed their neighbors, conquering warrior clans, to come upon them and subject them. And he would raise up for them judges who would deliver them for a time, but as soon as they were redeemed and freed, they would return again to their sin. And this created this cycle. And God's people were constantly under threat from their neighbors until finally in 2 Samuel 7, a good king named David established his reign over the house of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 7, 1, it says that God gave them rest from all their enemies. And like if you're reading the Bible in a year, I know some of you started this year and you bailed, okay? And that's all right, we've all been there and we've done that. But you get to 2 Samuel 7, and if you don't know anything else about the Bible, you're, you're maybe believing in your heart. Like, wow, this is as good as it gets. Like, this is the high watermark. Could it be any better? And then you'd read a few more pages, and you'd find out that it would definitely need to get better. Because just like Israel had abandoned their God in the past, the generations following David and his son Solomon abandoned God and their neighbors came and conquered them. They're carried off into exile and they have no rest. Just wandering over the face of the earth. Even when they finally come back and rebuild their temple, they're subjugated by the nations. In Jesus's day, they're living oppressed under the Roman empire. There is no rest 
and people of God. They have to look out into the future to maybe sometime, in some distant place, God will act again and give his people rest. So we were made in the image of God to enjoy the rest that he himself possesses, but we all abandon him. And you know the restlessness and toil that takes over in your life is, is maybe not Philistine level, but it's pretty rough. And you and I face real stress. It reminds us there has to be something more. There has to be a rest, and there is, that you were made to rest in God. And just so you know that this isn't like an abstract issue, did you know that April is national I'm gonna get this right, National Stress Awareness Month. National Stress Awareness Month. If you didn't know, you're now aware. People are stressed. Listen to this. Recent study found that 27% of people are so stressed they cannot function. One in four. So stressed they cannot function. Lots of factors play into that. People cited inflation, violence, crime, political division. They're stressed out. They're frazzled. Found that 72% of young parents found that they were so busy, they can't even enjoy their life. Another study from the Pew Center said that one in four parents have struggled in the last year to afford food or housing for their children. Another 25% can't afford needed health care. 20% of people can't afford child care. What do you do if that's your reality? I understand why people are stressed. I know we get stressed about small things, but those are big things. Those are things that keep people up at night. And then you add to it the other stuff, the like bondage to sin and shame and fear and worry about the future. The need we feel somewhere deep inside of us to prove our worth to whoever, to mask our insecurities by the praise that people give us. The pursuit of wealth, because if we just had a, another zero, then we'd really be safe from future financial ruin. No, but there's more to life than that. There's more to peace and rest any of those things, none of that will give you the contentment and the rest that you're looking for. I love the way St. Augustine said this in his confessions. He said, God, you've made us for yourself, and we're restless until we find our rest in you. Philosopher Dallas Willard said that your soul is really only at rest when you're with God, just like a child is with its mother. Listen, when I'm talking about rest, I hope you understand that I'm talking about more than an afternoon nap. I'm talking about the thing that God created you to have in him. A deep, a deep sense of alignment with your creator who loves you and made you. A sense of wholeness that all is right in the world because I am right with God. And that's the rest that Jesus offers us in this passage. And there's really two reasons why that is. Number one, 
Because Jesus perfectly makes God known. Jesus perfectly makes God known. See, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been traveling around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, announcing that the time of God's promised arrival is at hand and people everywhere should repent and believe the good news. Along with that, he's performing all kinds of signs and wonders so that the people who see him start to wonder if maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe, maybe he is the Messiah who's ushering in God's new kingdom. And his cousin, John, is sitting in a prison cell and is wondering that for himself. And so Matthew 11 begins with John sending his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus tells John's disciples, hey, report what you've seen. He says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In a word, yes, I am the Messiah. But the reason this is interesting is that Jesus' works, which to some people portray the Messiah that they've been waiting for, to other people does become an offense. And so right before the passage we read, Jesus pronounced woes. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Capernaum. He said, if the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the works that I've performed in you, they would have repented. And so it'll be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah at the day of judgment than it will be for you. See, the works of Jesus divided people neatly into two groups. Those who were willing to stand with Christ and those who took offense at him. And our passage begins with Jesus praising God for this strange turn of events. And he says in Matthew eleven twenty five, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. You see, Jesus looks at the effect of his ministry and recognizes God's mysterious plan in it. That rather than the whole world seeing Jesus and falling down before him, Jesus is dividing people into two groups. He calls them the wise and intelligent and the little babies. The wise and the intelligent and the little babies. I love that. That's a stark contrast. Who are these wise and intelligent people? I love the way G. Campbell Morgan said it. He said, they're the kind of people who can put two and two together. The kind of people who know how to take in all the evidence and draw logical conclusions. And these people have been assessing Jesus. They've been watching him, hearing his message, seeing the works he's performing, and they're trying to decide who he is. What is the significance of this man? And they conclude that he's either demon-possessed or intentionally leading God's people astray by blaspheming. And so they reject him, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Chorazan, the people of Capernaum, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, all of them turn against him. They're the wise and intelligent. They've assessed who he is and they've decided that he's nobody worth listening to. They made a terrible mistake. You see, they thought they knew how to get what their heart desired. They thought they knew 
how to experience the great blessings of God, the peace and the joy and the rest that you and I crave. This is how one of their rabbis said it, Rabbi Nehunia ben Kana, who lived in the second century AD. He said, he who takes upon himself the yoke of the Torah, from him shall be removed the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of worldly care. These are the men who had convinced themselves that, hey, if we just live obediently to God's law, we're gonna be able to live easy. We're gonna be able to rest secure. We know how to do this. We are self-sufficient. We can handle this on our own. But then there are these other people. My Bible says infants, but it's babies, little babies. They know their neediness, their helplessness. They're not self-sufficient. They've got absolutely nothing to commend them to God. And Jesus said that according to God's plan, it delights him to hide the significance of Jesus's ministry from the wise and intelligent, the people who can put two and two together and to reveal it to babies. See, the mighty works Jesus performed really did bring God's kingdom near. And if anybody had eyes to see and ears to hear, they were opening themselves up to him. They were gathering around him, trying to soak up all the blessings they could get. And I love that you and I, we get to look back with the benefit of the whole Bible and the life of Jesus that these people were witnessing with their own eyes and the death of Jesus for sinners and then his resurrection on the third day and then the apostles as they open that up to us and explain it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We get to see all that Jesus is, that he wasn't just a great preacher or a great miracle worker. He wasn't somebody who simply dazzled the crowds. He was the eternal son of God who in the fullness of time, according to God's plan, took on human flesh and was born a baby in Bethlehem. And he lived his life completely submissive and obedient to the will of God, obeying him in every jot and tittle. And at the end of his life, after spending three years performing miracles and preaching the gospel, he offered himself up as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. When they laid him in the tomb on the third day, God raised him up again, and he seated him at his right hand where he rules and reigns over all things. Listen, the wise and intelligent have not yet come to grips with who Jesus is, and that is according to God's plan. Love the way the apostle Paul says it, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were mighty or noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen. He's even chosen things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it's written, let the person who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, Jesus perfectly makes God known. There's no other God than the God who revealed himself to us in Jesus. 
Because of that, he's perfectly suited to give us exactly what we need and crave. Because of his life and his death and the resurrection, he makes God known and extends to us the rest that we crave. And that's where he gets to in verses 27 or 28 to 30, when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that just an amazing statement? Me and Mike were talking about this before church. That there are some times in the Bible you read things and they're, they just come off the page as if they were spoken in our own very day and time. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, this is just the, the word of God to me and you. you don't, I almost don't even need to explain it. I don't need to open up this point and get into the fine details of what the Greek syntax is, you hear it. It's the invitation from the God who made you and loves you directly to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love it. It's no conditions. Just all y'all who are weary and heavy laden. That means every last one of us, nobody is accepted. It is a universal invitation. It rings out from the pages of the Bible by the Holy Spirit directly to our hearts. And so how do you get in? How do you get this rest? Come to me, get the rest. Okay, I want it. How? Let me walk you through three steps. Number one, you have to admit your need. You have to admit your need. And we've already seen from this that God has, in his wisdom, chosen to hide these things from the wise and intelligent, people who are self-sufficient, who think to themselves, hey, look, there'll be time to be re- there will be time for me to rest when I'm dead. I've said those very words. I've said those words in this room. And there were witnesses, okay? I have lived long enough to eat my words, all right? God has no time for self-sufficient people. He's looking to bless people who admit their need. Here's why. Because if it's up to me to secure my future well-being, to build a life for myself that's gonna provide contentment, to secure my standing before God by some kind of pious life, My work will never be done. And here's what I mean. I mean, how much money do you really need to insulate yourself from future financial ruin? What's the dollar amount? How healthy do you have to be to extend the days of your life? What's your blood pressure need to be? What's your cholesterol got to be at to make sure you live longer? You get where I'm going? How well do you have to perform at work? This is, this is what some people say turns from preaching to meddling, right? Because <laughs> I recognize like, hey, this applies to me as well as to you. How well do you have to perform at work to make sure that someday in the future you're job doesn't decide to go in a different direction and restructure your department and hand over your responsibilities to somebody else. You get it right? There's not a dollar amount 
that can keep you safe. Doesn't matter what your blood pressure is at. You get hit by a train tomorrow. Doesn't matter how well you perform at work. Companies cut ties all the time. And if you think that if you just work a little bit harder, that if I just get through this season, if I can just make it past Easter, I'll finally be able to rest. You're wrong. And you will live a restless, discontented life. But if you'll admit your need, say, Jesus, I'm weary. I'm worn down. I'm burned out. I need you. I need you to fill up in me what I lack. I need you to give me what I want. I need you to give me the rest I crave. That's the people he receives with open arms. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So what does he mean when he says, come to him in faith? Because that's the second thing. Not just admit your need, but come to him in faith. I mean, coming to Jesus is the act by which you respond to his invitation. He says, I will give you rest. And you say, okay, hold right there, I'm coming. I'll be right there. That is faith. And I say that's faith because there are several places in the scriptures where the word come or come to me or coming to him is associated with believing. And I want to prove it to you. In John 6, Jesus receives a crowd of people who are asking him questions about the provision he's giving them. And he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. And he who believes in me will never thirst. These two things are parallel. You come to me, you'll never be hungry. You believe in me and you'll never thirst. Coming to Jesus is believing in Jesus. Same thing happens in Hebrews eleven six, 6. The author says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I like how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, in coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, that's the wise and intelligent, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hang with me. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We come to him and believe and are built up into a spiritual house, but those who disbelieve fall on him and are crushed. So you hear Jesus' invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and you're like, step one, I know I'm needy, I know, that I know I need the rest you have on offer for me. And so coming to him is believing that he can deliver what he says he can deliver. I believe, Jesus. I'm coming with open hands to receive from you this rest. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three specific areas, but I want to go ahead and project so you can start to think about them with me. The first thing that I've been thinking about a lot is anxiety and worry. And why it is that when I think about my future... 
my first reaction is to lay in bed at night and try to put all the pieces together to make sure I can perfectly organize things to get exactly where I want to be. Why do I do that? Why don't I rest in God's plan for me? And knowing that he who began a good work in me is gonna bring it to completion and he's gonna conform me perfectly to the image of his son and he has good plans for me. Why don't I just rest in that? Why is it that when I look at my calendar and my to-do list, I get so overwhelmed? Why is it that we can work a busy week, 40, 50 hours in the office, and collapse on the couch on Saturday and think to ourselves, I didn't get anything done this week. Why, why don't I just be present in every moment? Aware of the people that God has brought into my life, and the very things that are most important for me for, to do in that moment, to make the best use of the time wherever I find myself. Why is it that when we look at our bank accounts or retirement accounts, why is it that when we start to hear words of recession and economic downturns, we immediately go into disaster mode? Instead of just remembering what Jesus has taught us, that we can be content with what God has given us, that we don't need to worry about what we're gonna eat or what we're gonna drink or what we're gonna wear. We know the Gentiles concern themselves with things like this and our heavenly father knows we need them all. So it says, let's just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust and rest in the fact that my good father knows what I need and he will supply my needs according to his riches in Christ. I'm telling you, that is what rest is. Do you believe it? I love this story in Mark chapter five of this lady got this hemorrhage of blood, has been suffering for 12 years. She's gone to every doctor to try to find some answers and none has been able to heal her body. But she heard word of Jesus and knew that he could heal her. And so one day she works up the courage to press through the crowds and just grab onto the hem of his garment because she believed that if she just touched him, that he'd be able to heal her. And I just got the thing in this week that what if instead of some unknown medical condition, we got so fed up with our worry and stress and anxiety? What if we got so fed up with our feelings of overwhelm and being burned out? We said, hey, I've tried every, I've tried every productivity tip on YouTube. I have tried every budgeting software. But I've heard that Jesus is able to do more than I can ask or think. So I'm gonna work up the courage and just come to him believing that Jesus hears the mess of my life and I'm grabbing on to you by faith, trusting that you're able to heal me. That's what I want for you. He is able. So come to him in faith. And finally, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This yoke idea, you, you may know what a yoke is. It's an implement carved out of wood that either transfers the energy of one ox or two oxen 
to whatever implement they're pulling behind it. Maybe it's a plow or maybe it's a cart, but this yoke presses against their chest so that when they walk forward, they drag behind it whatever is there. You've seen these things, a yoke. And Jesus says he wants you to take his yoke upon you. So let's think about this. This yoke was a prevalent item in everyday life for the people Jesus spoke to, and it also carried a deep metaphorical meaning that we know we're not workhorses, we're not beasts of burden, and yet there are some times in life where we feel like it, and people remind us we are. Because of that, throughout the Old Testament, the yoke was used as a symbol of slavery and submission. It's used in Leviticus 26.13 in that way. Speak about God redeeming his people from the yoke of their bondage. It's also that way in Jeremiah 30. You could also look in Isaiah 14, verse 3, to see these ideas play out. There's this negative connotation that you can be enslaved to a person or under submission to a person and you're under their yoke. I already told you about the rabbis who saw the yoke of the law as a, a blessing. That, hey, if you'll just take the yoke of the law upon you, life will be easy. But Jesus said in Matthew 23 that what they saw as the yoke of the law was in fact a heavy burden. He said, you pile on top of my people heavy burdens and you refuse to lift them even with a finger. But Jesus' burden is not like that. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And of course, that's up to his character. That whereas the rabbis wanted to be well-respected and flattered by their students, Jesus was gentle and lowly. And he was totally different. He wasn't motivated by the praise people gave them. He was motivated by love. And he loved them and he wanted to set them free and to exchange their heaviness for his lightness and for their workhorse burdens for his easy yoke. You could also put it this way, that Jesus' yoke isn't submission to a set of rules, like a, a new kind of code, a new law, but it's simply dedication to him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See, Jesus lived a life that has never been lived before and will never be lived after, a life of complete and perfect submission and devotion to God. And yet he told his first disciples to go into the all, all the world making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything he commanded. And when Jesus is talking about his yoke, he's talking about the way of life he lived and the way of life he taught. And it's impossible for you and me to possess the rest Jesus is talking about if we refuse to live the kind of life he's called us to live. And so if you're serious about wanting the rest that you were created for, the rest that you crave, the rest that you are restless until you experience. Yeah, you gotta admit your need. You have to come to Jesus in faith and you have to willingly submit to his leadership in your life. You have to wanna do things his way. It's impossible to possess rest in any other way. You were made to rest in God. Jesus perfectly makes God known. And therefore, the rest you crave is only found in him. And so over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at what Jesus teaches us about these areas of our life that so often keep us restless and discontent 
and adrift without purpose or peace. And as we kick into this series, I would just ask you one simple question. Are you at rest in Christ or are you constantly in motion? You know that better than anybody. You know the internal condition of your soul. Do you have the rest for your soul that Jesus is talking about? Or are you still searching for something, for anything that's gonna bring some calm to the chaos, some order to the disorder? I'm telling you that there is a wonderful, abundant life available to all of us. And if you will know and follow Jesus, you'll live a restful life no matter your circumstances. Will you pray with me this morning?